This is a Color Pencil Podcast, session number 154. Welcome to Sharpened Artist, a colored pencil podcast where we discuss in detail all things in and around colored pencils and the colored pencil artist. And now your hosts, Lisa Clow and John Middick. Hello, my name is John Middick of SharpenedArtist.com, and I'm joined, as usual, by Lisa Clow of Lockery Fine Art. Lisa, how goes it? (laughs) It goes well. (laughs) Good, good, good. All right, so this is a show about colored pencil where we discuss colored pencil, you guessed it, and anything and everything around this medium that we love so much. Lisa, what are we talking about today? We are answering some questions about colored pencils that our listeners have sent in. Yeah, we haven't done this in a little while, so this is always a lot of fun, I think. And we've had a little stack of uh, questions getting piled up here. And if you have a question, you can always reach out to us. I've got a page set up, sharpenedartist.com slash Q&A, and you can submit one right over there in a form. Or you can reach out through email, podcast at sharpenedartist.com. So our first question, Jim writes... Is there any chance that you'll do more podcast interviews? And what about color pencil in botanical illustration, scientific illustration, etc.? There's abundant evidence of a lot of use of colored pencils in those fields. However, it never gets covered in my favorite podcast about all things colored pencil. Thanks. <laughs> well, thanks, Jim. Appreciate that. Uh, we will do more podcast interviews. Uh, that's just not something that we have a whole lot of people ask for all the time. We do hear that from time to time, and we are working on getting more um, ready for the show. But to answer your question specifically about the botanical illustrations and scientific illustrations, you may be right that there are, you know, some people that are doing that or there's some interest in that. And I know that there's some type of certification that one can get for being able to do botanical illustrations. And uh, the thing the thing about it is, and Lisa and I have talked about this with each other uh, before, is that, you know, most of the time what you're going to do and what they're looking for is something that isolates the individual plant or flower or whatever it is that you're drawing, and then you have a white background. That's basically what that is, is that you're isolating this particular plant so that it is readily identifiable and it has every all the markings to where someone would be able to identify this as, oh yes, this is this particular scientific uh, illustration of this, you know. And so it often these things are born out of the need to be included in like uh, some type of magazine or textbook or something like that. And so this is the reason why they usually in the past have had a white background is it was an illustration used for something else. And no shadows on the pa- the white oh, background. Oh, yeah, good point. That's a big deal yeah. with the, with this sort of thing. You don't want to add a shadow. Now, if you're doing a, botan- you know, a botanical illustration that is just going to get framed and you're using for your, for yourself, then I don't see anything wrong with adding a shadow. But if you're using it for the purpose of this is, you know, falls into that category, then they do not generally want shadows under that. And they want it to, uh, often the ones I've seen, they want it to fade away on the stem portion of it. 
They'll have like this this slow uh, fade, or if not, then they'll do that in post-editing whenever they're putting that together in whatever textbook or magazine. And I'm not an expert, just throwing this out there, on botanical drawings, so I'm sure that there's more involved than this. This is just just what little I I know of. I just cut you off. I am so sorry. I'm going to apologize (laughs) right now for that. But um, yeah, no, it's not something that either one of us are experts on. So you're really going to want to do some research on your own before you jump into that. Mm -hmm. These are just a couple of little tips. What little I know about it. The big no is don't add a shadow underneath the flower. Yeah. Or anything. Yeah. The reason why I'm making a big deal about cutting Lisa off is because somebody (laughs) recently said I'm cutting Lisa off in a, in a review. And uh, I, I know in the past, someone also said Lisa cuts me off. So I guess we do it to each other. I guess that means that we're normal and we do normal talking so okay yeah you know the problem with me i get super excited when i like an idea will pop in my head i know but i don't think like i can't remember stuff so when it pops in my head it's like i have to spit this out now or it's gone Uh, and i i gotta blame myself a little bit for that because it's all in the editing a a lot of times and you know if i'm editing uh sometimes i'll make it sound like you know, not on purpose, but I'll make it sound like I've cut Lisa off or she cut me off or something. Well, just because it's easier. <laughs> yeah, I just did it right there. But we get a difference too because you'll get spot. We we record these over Skype, so yeah. we're yeah. not in the same room with each other, and that yes. sometimes you get an overlap where one person will be talking for maybe uh, we've had it where it went on for like ten seconds and right. they didn't hear that the other person was still talking. Right, like you have this lag, so it's hard to. It's not that they were trying to be rude to each other. Right, uh, my mom would have kicked my rear if I cut somebody off. But I mean, you know, I know not to do that. But yeah. with Skype, sometimes it just happens. It does so happen. Yeah, and we're, we're not we're... intentionally trying to be rude to each other. Right, right, right. So moving on, our next question comes from Laura, who said, how can a painting be sold as my original art when it's based on someone else's photo? I hear talk about different stock photo sites and I get confused. I know images are all over the web and I may use one in a practice piece or one for my own wall. But if I didn't take the photo, what makes the painting original to me and lets me sell it or send it to a competition? So many factors of this question. Mm -hmm. So first, the... Being original to you, did you paint it? Did you draw it? I mean, the painting itself is your original. That doesn't necessarily mean it's your original concept. I think those are two different things. Now, what I personally like to do is change that. So let's say recently I did a painting of a dolphin and the stock photo that I got it from Story, uh, yeah, Storyblocks, they changed it. It used to be graphic stock, but I got my photo from there. The photo itself wasn't super impressive. It wasn't one that the reference photo that you would want to blow up and print on a poster and it's going to look amazing on the wall. It was fairly boring. The water was gray. The dolphin was gray. Everything kind of blended in. I used that photo to make sure that my my dolphin itself was in was drawn accurately, that the perspective, everything was, was right there and to see where the water moved. But I completely changed the color. When you look at this, you would never recognize, unless I pointed it out to you, that that painting came from that reference photo because I made so many changes. This is now an original to me because no one else's is going to look exactly like mine unless they copy mine. So that is one of the things that I try to do. And I'll do different things where you guys have seen me do this a lot, where I will have a damask background on part and then the subject. And these are taking an element from that reference photo and putting my own twist on it. So now this is an original to me. No one else's is going to look like mine 
unless they copied mine, whether I changed the colors, whether I changed the design. There's so, so many factors that you can change. Now, there have been times where I copied that reference photo exactly, where I'll look at the thumbnails on my computer and I uh, just by looking at them, I can't tell which was the art and which was the thumbnail where I copied that close. Mm -hmm. So that's fun for me, but it's also not going to be, you know, the ones that I'm super proud of because there's nothing that sets it apart from somebody else copying the same photo. So for me, when I'm using one of these stock sites, and I use them all the time, I try to change things. I try to improve on that photo. Again, whether it be color, contrast, the overall design, including I love damask backgrounds. That's just a part of kind of my thing. So I'll try to include that into, you know, just make it my own. How can you take that photo and twist it and turn it into your own design? That's ideal. As far as competitions, a lot of competitions won't let you use something that you have a reference photo from somebody else. The reason for that is they don't want a bunch of people doing the same exact thing. What happens is you'll have certain competitions where they'll have three artists all use the same reference photo. All three pieces look the same. They don't want that in a competition. So most competitions will tell you, use your own reference photo. If it's something like that where you're really copying exactly, they don't, I wouldn't personally submit something where I copied exactly someone else's photo because then too, I'm using their design, their com- their comp- composition, all of mm-hmm. that, unless I completely made alterations with the background, with everything, and I just used a part of that reference photo. I definitely want to try and make it my own if it's something for a competition. I, I don't personally feel right just taking somebody else's, whether it be a portrait or anything else. If it's somebody else's photo, it, it's not necessarily what I would enter into a composition competition so that's a bit different not but, you, oh sorry oh, go ahead i was just gonna say with portraits now there are times where i'll copy a portrait more exact and use that on my site to advertise like look i can copy this exact to that so if you're hiring me for a portrait i want you to know it's going to look like that photo that would be yes my, my yes thing. that's a good one right there yeah because it kind of shows off your skills, you know, if you're able to do that. But, you know, another thing you could do is you could look at some of these reference photos. And if you're motivated to create some artwork from that, sometimes, I mean, unless it's a dolphin, you know, and you don't live near the ocean or um, somewhere like that. But other than that, I mean, if it's, it's a still life or something like that, you can get ideas and that should motivate you. And then you can go out and maybe take your own reference photos. There is that yeah. option. So just keep that in mind as well. The other thing about, you know, just copying from a photo reference site is you can look at what the terms are and what the copyright is. Most of the, you know, most, it depends on the site, but like on Flickr, uh, most of the time you can see if it's in, if it's put out there in Creative Commons and you can look also to see what stipulations the photographer may have. You can also reach out to photographers and ask if you can use some of their images. But I like to always go back to the fact that, you know, if it didn't originate with you, then, you know, unless you're using two or three reference photos, why not just use it as inspiration to go take your own reference photos and then just do your own artwork? And if that's possible, I think that's a real great way to go. For me, there are times where, let's say it's a flamingo. There's a flamingo I did, I got from wildlifereferencephotos.com. And I copied that one exactly because it was such good practice for drawing feathers, for drawing the lighting. I loved everything about it. And then I could take what I learned from that And I can apply it to my own reference photos that maybe aren't as strong. So I don't, I think that there's definitely value. If you've got a really good photo, I think there is so much value in what you can learn from copying something exactly and then eventually, you know, move more into using your own reference photo or or making those improvements the way the lighting was on that one. 
being that I can apply that now to one that doesn't have that grid of light, like you learn so much yes. from copying something exactly. So I don't think there's no value in that either. And it still is your original, but within that, it's your original with little asterisk that all kinds of other people Yeah, because do. it could be considered derivative because you were not the originator of the artistic concept. But I like that point, and I would agree with that, especially early on if you're familiar or unfamiliar, rather, with a subject matter. Copying exactly will teach you so, so much. Our next question comes from Chan, who asks, Can you explain how you prep your artwork for shipping? How do you protect your oil and acrylic paintings, colored pencil paintings, when you use powder blender, and so on? I love this question, but I also kind of hate it. Because I want to throw this disclaimer out there. I don't like to give people advice because so much can go wrong. And I don't want you to come back and be mad at me that my advice didn't work. That's the part I hate. Um, So just be aware of that. You've got, there's always positives and negatives to everything that you set this up or how you set this up. So the reason that I, I throw this out there, let's say you put insurance on your artwork. You're shipping through UPS. If you put insurance on it, that insurance really only covers if they lose the box unless you let them package the artwork. If you packaged it yourself, they will generally and that the their employees have told me this they'll generally come back and say nope you didn't package it well enough that's why it got damaged even if you did package it better than what they would have now they package their stuff crazy good it's almost overkill i've opened a box that they shipped a painting and it was really really it took about 20 minutes to get that painting out of the box and i actually worried about damaging the painting through trying to remove it because you started it got to a point where i had to use a box cutter or scissors to get parts open and i was so afraid they had it packed so tight to the painting that i was going to damage it that way but they would guarantee that you may pay an extra $40 to $50 to have them box a medium sized piece of artwork but they'll their insurance will cover that. And they don't always tell you that when you say that you want to buy insurance. They don't mention the fact that because you shipped it, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, because you you packaged it yourself that they're not going to cover any damage done only if they lose it, which to me is a sore point because I always felt I'm paying you to ship it. That should guarantee you don't lose it. Like, why am I paying extra for you to do the job I'm paying you for? That mm-hmm. I'm a little bitter about that one. I think it's a little bit sleazy, but okay. So be just keep in mind, if you package it yourself, you're almost guaranteed that they're going to come back and say if it was damaged that you didn't package it well enough. It was something you did wrong. So what I do, give just again, remember that part. What I do, mm-hmm. I do this in, in stages. And it depends on if it's artwork. Like let's say it's a framed painting or a painting without a frame or a colored pencil piece that's in a frame. What I do is put a sheet of glassine around the entire art piece. Glassine is acid-free. It's going to protect the artwork. If you use, let's say, a just a blank piece of paper, on a colored pencil piece. If you get a little nugget of color that came loose from your artwork, it might stick to that paper. And if that paper slides around, then it can actually add add pressure that creates lines that weren't supposed to be there. It's basically trying to draw for you with that little nugget of color. With glassine, nothing sticks to glassine. So you minimize the the potential of that happening by using that instead. Plus again, glassine, acid-free, the artwork's not sticking or smudging to it. So that is the best way to go, whether it be oil, acrylic, colored pencil, colored pencil with powder blender. I'm always going to put that glassine all the way around the artwork. My next step is to cover it with with a piece of cardboard on front and back of the artwork. Then I go through with bubble wrap, then more cardboard, then more cardboard, and then seriously, a lot of cardboard. I will usually put, depending on how fragile the piece is, if it's a painting, just a canvas painting on stretcher bars, I don't have to be as careful, but I still use a lot of cardboard, a lot more than you might think. What you want to do is imagine 
handing the box that you just wrapped to a five-year-old who's then going to go play with the box. They're going to kick it around. They're going to toss it in the air and then kick it. They're going to build a fort by setting it on top of two other boxes. If they sit on top of that top box, if you think your box cannot withhandle, with, with handle, wow, I'm making up words, withstand a five-year-old pr- playing with it, can't handle UPS, UPS, USPS, any shipping company, they're, even if you write fragile all over it, I've actually been told by people who work there, don't bother. They take that as a personal challenge uh, when when fragile is written on it, that they were rougher with it. But no, writing fragile is not enough. You want to really make sure that that artwork can with, go through a five-year-old using that box as a toy to stand on, to kick around, to use as a table. If it can't, you don't have yours packaged well enough. That's my general way to look at it. And I get my boxes from a place called the Container Store. If you've got one local to you, they have really good sizes. And the boxes are actually a decent price. They may cost me anywhere between, I'd say on average, 5 to $15, depending on the size that I need. And those sizes are almost never the size that I really need. I have to cut it down and basically make my own box. I use a ton of tape and an exact or a box cutter to create my own box. Lots and lots and lots of layers of cardboard. And I try to to keep my like Amazon boxes or shipping boxes that I get from Dick Blick or wherever else so that I can use that as additional padding inside the box. Because remember, it needs to to be able to stand up to that five-year-old using it as a toy. If it can't, not good enough, which means lots and lots of cardboard. But no matter how well you package it, like I said, You've got that risk of UPS not not standing by that insurance that you think would cover damage because they'll come back and say it wasn't good enough. So just keep that in mind. Um, no matter how you package it, that's always a concern. And I try to keep the box as small as possible. I don't want to use, let's say I've got a painting or a colored pencil piece that's 8 by 10. I don't want to put it in a box that's big enough to hold something that's a 20 by 30. It's too easy for that box to bend if you don't have enough support with the the pencil inside. UPS wants about a two inch gap all the way around the artwork inside the box. They say because they want to. If it if the box got stabbed with a box cutter, is it going to hit the painting? Is what their general or what I've been told. Um, and there is a very good chance of it getting hit by a box cutter or something else in somebody else's box poking through theirs because theirs wasn't packaged well enough and damaging yours. So you want to have that much, you know, cardboard and bubble wrap and a lot of protection there. Now, if I possibly can ship something in a tube, let's say a piece of artwork that I did not use powder blender, that I did not use touch-up texture titanium white because those are non-flexible, if I can roll it in a tube, I prefer to do that because I feel like my artwork's really protected that way. It's hard to damage those tubes that you buy for shipping. I have to cut the tube down to shorten them because they're almost always too long. But those I really do like shipping in. It keeps the artwork very, very safe. But I'm very limited on how much of my artwork I can use that method on. Usually I have to make my own box, box cutter, tons of tape, and bubble wrap and glassine. Those are, are, that's kind of my my formula for putting together these boxes. But anytime I box my own, I am taking a risk that if that gets delivered to somebody, it gets damaged in shipping, I'm the one who has to refund them the money for the painting because I did not pack it well enough, unless I can convince UPS that it really was packaged well enough. 
Yeah, I don't really have a whole lot to add to that. I think you covered everything that uh, you and I talked about. I just want to underscore, you know, use glassine. Obviously, that's a great choice. Um, Pack it well where it's very, very tight and that, you know, it's not just floating around in there. Don't use peanuts. Don't, you know, just stuff a bunch of newspaper in there. Protect the artwork. Use, you know, I can't roll mine up. I'm going to have to lay it flat, have it shipped flat. And so I'm going to use foam core board, anything that's tight. Touching the artwork itself, though, I want that to be something that is uh, at least not going to be absorbent and is not going to transfer anything from the artwork. And so if you're wondering about any of these things, then uh, just head on over to the show notes and I'll have uh, linked up there the glass scene. Uh, it's very inexpensive and it's a, just a good yeah. product to use all the time. So it'll be in oh, the show notes. One more thing, just a, a word of caution. The only time I had something go bad in shipping, I was trying to make things more decorative or more fun for the person to open. So one of the, I actually like to get big bo- rolls of butcher paper and wrap the artwork on top of the glassine with that too. I think that that looks really, really nice presentation-wise. But also presentation-wise, I thought, now, and of course that would be within the bubble wrap and everything else on top, but that was kind of on top of the glassine, butcher paper, I forgot that part, and then my cardboard. It looks very, very nice. But I was on top of the the butcher paper, I would wrap it like a present. And then I was taking raffia, that long kind of paper-like ribbon, and wrapping it so it was almost like a present and had the bow on it. Well, the knot from the bow pushed on. It was a graphite piece I sent to somebody, a custom portrait. It pushed on and caused an indent in the paper that could not be repaired. I had to redraw the entire thing because of how I screwed up I didn't think about the fact that the pressure from the box and the pressure from shipping when other things were sat on top would Mm, actually, you know, cause that problem. So think about that, too. Make sure you've got really flat things. Now, I could still use the raffia. The difference is now I would put the artwork, glassine, cardboard, then put my butcher tape paper on top of that, go ahead and wrap the bow. But now the bow would be pushing into the cardboard, not the artwork itself. And then go ahead and do this whole bubble wrap, more cardboard, more cardboard, more cardboard, so much cardboard. But I would go through that process. But be careful what might push against it. And bubble wrap has always concerned me too, because it can kind of bow in. So in the case of a a canvas or a piece of artwork like colored pencil, where you've got the matting and anything that the bubble wrap might be able to press on it can stretch some of the artwork out. So that's definitely something that you want to just keep in mind. You don't want anything in that box that's pushing on it. So maybe you decided to send them a free gift of a cool keychain with your artwork on it. Make sure that can't press on the artwork itself. Things like that definitely can cause some major headaches for you. Okay, last question. Susan writes, I recently bought a set of Derwent ink tents to kind of bridge between my watercolor and acrylic painting. How do you get the pinprick point on your pencils? I use a Kuhn Ellipse sharpener and it doesn't, just doesn't seem to get the fine point. Tried some sandpaper, but don't think I'm doing it correctly. Please help. The thing about it is with, um, and you and I have talked about this, the Derwent Eek Tense pencils, it is hard to get a very uh, good point on them. And even if you do, then it wears down so quickly because just the texture of those pencils in general. I don't actually like the Coom uh, sharpeners all that much. I actually use the uh, Super Point sharpeners and then the Carl Angel 5. I like that one a lot as well. But I recently bought this pencil sharpener. I wanted to tell you guys about it. It's the iPoint Halo Westcott 
uh, pencil sharpener, and it is designed for colored pencils. And I always get a little nervous when a company starts designing a product for a particular product itself and colored pencil in particular. But this one so far, I'm still kind of testing it, but so far it's it's a pretty good pencil sharpener. Typically, it's around $60 if you buy it in uh, a store, but I do see it's a little cheaper in a brick and mortar that is, but I see it's a little cheaper on Amazon. I'll have that link in the show notes there for you. What it does is it's pressure sensitive. And so depending on how much pressure you push on the pencil, uh, and then it will stop, it will just dead stop. And it's, it's an electric pencil sharpener, but it'll stop whenever it reaches a fine point. If you have it very close to you, you can, you know, keep sharpening that pencil and it's done pretty well so far, but I've got a few more pencils I want to test it on. Oh, that's interesting. I'm curious to see what your final opinion is on that. I may need to get one for myself. Yeah, it may go south because I am going (laughs) to use uh, Prismacolor Premier on it and see what that does. Uh, Now, that's the ultimate test. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Uh, Now, here's the thing for me with ink tents. I absolutely love them. The pencils themselves, I don't care how sharp you get them. I find if you've got a lot of ink tents, like I've been painting, I've been painting several layers, and those final layers with sharp details, I don't get that with a pencil. No matter how sharp that pencil is, it doesn't stick. It's almost like what's on the paper and what comes out of the pencil, it's not, it, it just doesn't stick that well for me. It's like watercolor pencils, I can sharpen those, even the Derwent, Derwent ones, I can sharpen them to a fine point and draw with them and get a super fine point on other areas where I've added watercolor, but I don't find that with the Inktense pencils. So what I do instead, I use a paintbrush. I will, if you're using the pencils, usually I'll use the blocks and use use them almost like a watercolor pan and use a liner brush and use that for my fine details. But if I'm using just the pencils, then I'm going to take that pencil, scribble it onto either sanded paper or another piece of paper. And sanded paper works the best because you get the most pigment. And then I take my liner brush with some water and then use it like I'm painting, oh, you know, making a watercolor mixture. Yeah. That's so you're making idea. what's essentially, it's an ink mixture. I say yeah. watercolor, so, because that makes more sense to most people. But it is technically an ink mixture. And then I paint that for my fine, fine details. Now, if you're not used to using a liner brush, that does take practice. I recommend something that has a long, long bristle, something that's at least an inch long. A lot of times you'll look at bristles that have these just barely any hair and you'll think you're going to get the finest detail with that. They don't hold enough, even with the ink tents, it's not going to hold enough paint or ink in this case. And so you're not going to need to get those nice long brush strokes. So go with something that's about an inch long. And my favorite are the synthetic hog hair. I get them, um, if you're in the US, if you've got a Hobby Lobby near you, I love their generic synthetic hog hair liner brushes. Uh, which is funny because I typically am not a huge fan of most generic products, um, but with their paintbrushes, I love their generic paintbrushes. But synthetic, generic synthetic hog haired liner brush is how I get my fine details. I don't get them with the pencils. Now I use the pencils to draw on my work. Kind of, it's I'd say it's somewhere in the middle of of the painting when I'm about halfway done is when I'll use pencils. So I've already got my base layer with the ink tents done. And then I'll come through and draw some things with the pencils where it's not super thin, but it's thinner than just painting. And then once I'm to the point where I want the fine, fine details, I switch back to using the liner brush to get those. I just have never gotten those pencils, no matter how sharp they are or what pencil sharpener you use, or if you're using the sanded paper, it's like the point just doesn't stick. It doesn't give me the line that I need. That's where I switch over to the paintbrush and then I get the results that I'm looking for. 
Yeah, you got to keep on sharpening it, and then it kind of—I I know what you're talking about. It kind of glides over. It kind of yes, just doesn't yeah. stick. Yeah. It doesn't. It almost you reach that me point. like a wax, like it's waxy, mm-hmm. which it's obviously not because it's a water-based pencil. But it feels like it's just not the pigment isn't coming off onto the paper. For it, it's yeah. very, very odd. Once I get to the point where I want those fine lines, so mm-hmm. yeah, the paper that does make work. sense using that one-inch uh, liner because then you're able to fill up the product enough to where it will mm-hmm. deposit it in that long brush. That that's that's a and good it's tip. gonna yeah it's gonna feel weird at first so if you do that don't be like oh, i'm terrible with a paintbrush i'm never gonna get this we all especially me feel like that when you start learning to use a liner brush just practice with it the more you use it it'll get to where it feels like an extension of, of your hand like it's just as comfortable as using a pencil but you have to practice with it so that is something if you try it once and you think oh, i'm just not good at this no no one's good at it to start with you could definitely it's going to take a little bit of practice once you get it though it will be one of those things that you're so glad you took the time to learn how to use cut back on coffee for the straight line too all right <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you have a question you can always send that to us sharpenedartist.com slash q and a or email us podcast at sharpenedartist.com this is a weekly show that means that probably next week we'll have another show so we'll talk to you again next week bye thanks for listening to this week's episode all the show notes can be found at www.sharpenedartist.com 